Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday the 23rd of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Uh, we'll get kicked off with uh, the UK Supreme Court and whether Scotland's allowed to uh, have a referendum on independence or not. Uh, let's just have a listen to the uh, final few seconds of the uh, announcement. For all these reasons, which are set out more fully in the judgment, the court unanimously concludes that the proposed bill does relate to reserved matters. Accordingly, in the absence of any modification of the definition of reserved matters by an order in council under section 30 of the Scotland Act or otherwise, the Scottish Parliament does not have the power to legislate for a referendum on Scottish independence. Um, so that's the decision. Uh, what's interesting there, Brian, is that uh, what he said was, uh, unless the definition of reserved power is changed by an order in council, that's of course the Privy Council, so not a parliamentary decision, uh, but nonetheless, that's what needs to be done for, uh, for the Scottish Government to be able to uh, call a referendum unilaterally without the permission of the uh, UK government. So uh, here's what uh, Nicola Sturgeon tweeted out. Uh, while disappointed by it, I respect the ruling of the UK Supreme Court. Well, maybe does she? She certainly didn't uh, respect the ruling of the UK Supreme Court with respect to the name person scheme. But anyway, uh, it doesn't make law, she said, only interprets it. A law that doesn't allow Scotland to choose our own future without Westminster consent exposes as myth any notion of the UK as a voluntary partnership and makes case for Indy. She said, Scottish democracy will not be denied. Today's ruling blocks one route to Scotland's voice being heard on independence. But in a democracy, our voice cannot and will not be silenced. I'll make a full statement later this morning. Tune in around 11.30. So at around 11.30, uh, she said basically that, well, the next opportunity that people will have for any kind of election is going to be the general election. So they're, they're, clearly she and the SNP are going to use the general election as effectively a referendum on Scottish independence. It's going to be that it seems like in Scotland there's only going to be one topic for discussion. Uh, well, I'm not surprised, Mike, because I think the agenda for many years has been to achieve the breakup of the United Kingdom. This was clearly an underlying agenda with the whole business of the European Union. We're not out of the European Union. And within that structure, the UK was never to be allowed to exist as a as a coherent uh, a coherent country whole. So this just doesn't surprise me at all. We are under massive attack by our own government and the globalists, and they want this country split up into effectively, <coughs> excuse me, regions so that we can be controlled. That's my opinion. Um, Debbie, uh, let's move from one end of the United Kingdom to the other and to Cornwall and Southwest Water. To have to bring it back to Southwest Water, everybody. But as everyone will know, I'm a repeated sewer flood, and Southwest Water are no different to pretty much all the water companies. They are corrupt and they always try to slither their way out of pretty much everything. And I've done everything above board for, the pre for pretty much 15 years now. We've been to Offwat, we've been to Consumer Council for Water, we've been to Ombudsman's, we've been to lawyers, we've been to parliamentarians, we've been to Hansard, we've been everywhere. 
And yet again, this week, we see another story of Southwest Water refusing to accept any blame. It's not our fault. So the beach that we saw that came with, was pouring sewage the other week, no, it's not Southwest Water's fault because it's always someone else's. And you know, for everyone that's listening and watching, no one could have tried harder to get justice from Southwest Water and Cornwall Council than me. So in the end, I have to write emails to two ladies, one of which runs Cornwall Council, Kate Canally. Hello, Kate Canally, I hope you're watching. And the other, Susan Davey, the CEO of Pennon, who's the parent company of Southwest Water. Now, these ladies are pretty much old enough to be my own daughter. So as a mother, I decided to send them an email. Brian, you might, I'll let you freeze the screen to read it all because I've got past the point of caring now, but you might like to just read a couple of paragraphs out, Brian, for me. Well, it'll be a pleasure. I'll just start off with the first two. Dear Susan and Kate, another two nights sleeping in my high-vis jacket and welly boots, car keys in my hand just in case. A little boy died of mold. My disabled son lives in sewage. Mold is a constant companion. Cornwall is filthy. Sue, it is never your fault. And then you've got a link through to a BBC article, um, UK, England, Cornwall. So therefore, the fault must be Kate's. Please, ladies, put on your big girl's knickers and sort out who is going to take responsibility. It really is pathetic how two women with such power cannot organise a simple meeting. Houses don't have sewage alarms on them for no reason. Homes that are nowhere near a watercourse of the sea should not flood with wastewater and surface water. Mine does. And of course, the point is, uh, Debbie, that it isn't just your house. You are speaking out and you've been very, uh, I think, very courageous in taking the battle to these uh, supposedly two big women. Um, but many other people are suffering in Cornwall and indeed in other places around UK. Yeah, and it's constant, you know, and I, I really do. I live in a house with no heating, no hot water, the ceiling's falling down, the windows are falling out because I've been flooded 102 times. And I'm just going to show you what happened to us last night. So this is fresh footage. I hope Southwest Water and Cornwall Council are watching because it's not my fault. It's yours. Have a look at this. Oh, it's a highway car. This is very good. Right, we might want to start filming now. Highway maintenance can't see what's going on. Look at that. That's quite a stream. Now, if you imagine a lot more water and that's coming Southwest Waters Pumping Station. 
And that was just last night. Um, and as you can see, it's a hazard. Um, vehicles can just plunge into water. Uh, they have no idea of the depth. Manholes are up. This is what life is living like in Cornwall. It's like this everywhere. The roads are closed. If they're not closed, they're flooding. What, can, and, what and, more can I say? And Debbie, just, just to set the scene, that, that water collecting in a variety of places in the roads ultimately ends up in the lower level residential areas where you are suffering the worst of the effects and uh, later in the news we're going to be talking about the government's plans for leveling up and uh, one of the things that the government claims is that they're going to be improving infrastructure will it include uh, uh, wastewater treatment uh, i doubt it I think so Okay, uh, let's uh, head back to the subject of Ukraine then. And uh, well, Boris Johnson was speaking to CNN yesterday. I think this was CNN Portugal. Um, but uh, here's what he was talking about. Boris Johnson claims France was in denial uh, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's have a listen to what he said. In G7's in leaders' meetings, did you find different countries were... Um, to quote a predecessor yeah, I mean, of a... your, don't go wobbly. This thing was a huge shock, right? We, we, uh, we were all taken, I mean, we could see the, the Russian battalion tactical groups massing, but different countries had very different perspectives. I mean, be in no doubt that the, the French were in, you know, were in denial right up to the last moment. The, the Germans, for all sorts of sound economic reasons, really didn't want it to, uh, you know, they were... They were I'll tell you a terrible thing. Uh, the German view was at one stage that if it were going to happen, which would be a disaster, then it were better for the whole thing to be over quickly and for Ukraine to, to fold. And uh, I couldn't support that. I, uh, you know, that, you know, I, I thought that was a disastrous uh, way of looking at it. But I can understand why they thought and felt as they, they did. I remember the Italians, again, massively dependent on, on, on Russian hydrocarbons, at one stage, simply saying, you know, that they, uh, they would be unable to, to support the position we were taking. But then what happened was everybody, Germans, French, Italians, everybody, Joe Biden, saw that there was simply no option because you couldn't negotiate with this guy. That's the key point. That's where the logic all, all, all breaks down when people call for a, a negotiated solution. There is no deal. He's right. not offering one. He doesn't even want one. Which takes me to this. And, and, and Zelensky isn't in a position to do one. His people wouldn't let him. Right, so, so as you saw from the caption there, Boris basically saying in this uh, little speech uh, that talks cannot begin until all territory is handed back. You cannot begin a negotiation until or ter all territory is handed back or it's won back. Um, so again, uh, you know, a senior British politician uh, basically calling for the war to last in as long as possible yes. and, and widely reported by a number of different 
analysts that it was Boris Johnson was one of the key individuals that's constantly disrupted any attempts by Zelensky to get any form of peace agreement with the Russians. Uh, there's no doubt that this took place. So those uh, Europeans, French, Germans, whoever it was who said they wanted the war over quickly, because that was for the best of everybody, no Boris Johnson and presumably his globalist backers were not going to make it happen. Let's have a recap of a, the beautiful little clip that you played a couple of days ago, Mike, of Rishi Sunak meeting Zelensky. And uh, we've put a caption in, the love that dare not speak its name. Oh, what a lovely war. I think these two are in love with each other. The handshake goes on forever. I did think Rishi was going to plant a kiss on his cheek, on Zelensky's cheek. Uh, we then go into the opulence of the inner sanctum. So Rishi is a billionaire. We'll feel fully at home with that. But watch carefully for who appears in the lineup, which comes up in this video clip in just a few seconds. And I wonder whether our audience will uh, spot the man of interest. You might do or might not, but we'll come on to that in a minute. But it's all handshakes. It's a love in. And of course, what is the agenda? More British uh, money and weapons to prolong the war, because this is a lovely war that's going to help the globalists and indeed the international banking uh, fraternity. So when these two finally finish, uh, which is in any second now, let's have a look and see whether you spotted the person which we only noticed uh, a little bit before the start of the news. Well, here he is, let's uh, circle him. And it's our very own Tony Radikin, um, who is there in full combat uniform. Has yes. he come in off the trenches? It doesn't look, he's not dirty, he's not wet. So this is theatrical costume to make this Royal Naval officer appear to be with the Ukrainians, or is he out there as part of the Ukrainian staff? I, I find this photograph really incredible and encourage people to watch the video themselves because he is like a child who's about to get a Christmas present as Richie Sunak approaches him. Yes. You have to watch the clip. But let's jump back to February and see what the BBC was saying. So here's the headline. Ukraine's uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedian president who is rising to the moment. Yes, that was the headline, the comedian president. And if we get into the reporting by Stephen Mulvey, uh, he says that Zelensky, a com comedian who had no experience of politics when elected less than three years ago, has suddenly emerged as a convincing war leader. Well, he hadn't actually emerged at this stage. He was emerging. Um, but notice that we get a full uh, bit on Zelensky from a Russian-speaking Jewish family. He's remained dignified, resolute and articulate, according to the BBC. Well, the article continued with its dripping support for Zelensky. Um, it went on to say a key moment in the transformation from a leader floundering in the polls, who sometimes appeared out of his depth, into a national figurehead came in the early hours of Thursday, a few hours before Russia's invasion, in a sober address posted on social media, speaking partly in Russian, he said he had tried to call Vladimir Putin to avert a war and, and had been met by silence. 
So the BBC then put a film clip with this, which we're going to have a look at. The BBC, I have to say, lies in the film clip because it says it's 100 seconds. It's actually a little bit over 100 seconds, so that wasn't true. But let's have a look at the great comedian and what he said. Kiev is under attack, and on Friday, Ukraine's President Zelensky addressed the nation. Poznaczyw mnie jak ciel numer один. Мою родину як ціль номер два. Вони хочуть знищити Україну політично. And while Russia bombarded the capital, for a time there was speculation about Mr. Zelensky's whereabouts. He missed a call with the Italian Prime Minister. Russian state media claimed he'd fled the country. But later, he posted this video. Тими тут, наші військові тут, громадяни суспільства тут, всі ми тут. Захищаємо нашу незалежність. This was outside the president's office in central Kiev on Friday evening. He would warn, this night will be difficult, very difficult, but the morning will come. The night was difficult. Russia's onslaught continued. Morning would come too. And as it did, we heard from the president again. Тому що наша зброя це наша правда, наша правда в тому, що це наша земля, наша країна, наші діти, і ми все це будемо захищати. Kiev is Putin's priority and Zelensky stands in his way and with danger all around, there are reports the Americans had offered an evacuation, to which Zelensky replied, I need ammunition, not a ride. And in the middle of all of this, the president raised the stakes further, tweeting it's a crucial moment to close the long-standing discussion once and for all and decide on Ukraine's membership of the European Union. And while he looked to the West, all around was evidence of Putin's desire to force. So there we are, um, a, uh, a little video clip, of course, showing the uh, BBC's dripping enthusiasm for Zelensky. Uh, but let's uh, pull a little bit of it apart and pop this one up on screen. Uh, because uh, this was one of the key quotes. This night will be difficult, very difficult, but the morning will come. Well, we're going to suggest that in November 2022, the morning has arrived for Zelensky. And uh, let's have a look at what it's actually brought for the BBC's favourite puppet comedian president. Uh, the first thing, at least 7 million Ukrainians have abandoned the country. Uh, this is all statistics from uh, inside Ukraine itself. At least 5 million remaining Ukrainians are unemployed. At least 50% of the Ukrainian electrical distribution system is destroyed. 37 to 50% destruction of the Ukrainian economy. Nobody's too sure, but the 50% figure is cropping up more and more at least uh, $252 billion worth of damage to the Ukrainian infrastructure. That's from reports from the World Bank and the EU Commission. Circa 20% of Ukraine is now under Russian control. At least 100,000 Ukrainian military have died. And if that is the case, there will be about 600,000 injured because these are normal ratios of, uh, of death to injuries in war. Civilian casualties appear to be unknown. We've got a failure to secure sufficient US, UK, EU, NATO weapon supplies. Number 10, uh, access to EU membership has not been achieved. Number 11, access to NATO membership has not been achieved. 
12, Ukraine is now funded and controlled by the US, UK, EU soft loans, which they're providing for weapons and in order to keep public finances going in Ukraine. And number 13, we've now got the situation where the Ukrainian city populations are being called to evacuate so that they can find shelter, heat and food during the winter. So this is what happens when the BBC is allowed to help install a puppet comedian president. And I can only say, Mike, this is so tragic for the Ukrainian population because they simply do not realise how they've been duped by the Western powers. And in the meantime, Boris Johnson says, keep it going. Keep that war going because that enables uh, the US, UK and the EU to keep the control going. But this was another quote from Zelensky in that little clip. We will defend our state because our weapon is our truth. Well, it's certainly not truth because this is the idiot uh, president who nearly took us into World War III with lies over who fired the missile striking Poland. So if we come back to the uh, latest puppet running UK, Rishi Sunak, this was the quote you also put up with a video clip a couple of days ago, Mike, we'll just repeat it. It's deeply humbling to be in Kiev today and to have the opportunity to meet those who are doing so much and paying so high a price to defend the principles of sovereignty and democracy. Well, I think we need a red line through that. This is what he really mean uh, what he really meant, I would suggest, it's been great to meet the comedian president who has delivered his whole country into the hands of my globalist chums and bankers. The World Economic Forum will be pleased. So whilst uh, Richie was at his loving with Zelensky, let's remind our audience that the Ministry of Defence saw fit to mock very brave uh, Ukrainian soldiers by offering them lighters uh, but of course, what did this ultimately mean? These are lighters going to men who ultimately are going to die on the front lines because that is the tragic situation in this war in Ukraine. Uh, Mike, I don't think we could do more on this. What, what the British government is doing now under the hands of Rishi Sunak, but of course Boris Johnson's in the background, this is outrageous. And it is time that the Ukrainian population woke up to the fact that they've been completely had uh, by the UK government and the West um, in order to keep this war going until the last Ukrainian. Um, and then the question is, what's the next war going to be? Is there going to be a new front? Well, it certainly looks like it. Uh, so here's Joseph Burrell, uh, the European Commission High Representative. That's basically the European Union's Foreign Secretary. Uh, after many hours of discussion, the two parties did not agree to a solution today, he said yesterday. Both bear full responsibility for the failure of the talks today. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about Serbia and Kosovo. Um, so he is warning of an escalation and violence uh, there. Um, and because he had been there to try to mediate between uh, the Serbian President uh, Alexander uh, Vucic uh, and uh, uh, Kosovo's Prime Minister, uh, Kurti. Um, so what's this all about? Well, would you believe they're going potentially going to go to war with the uh, civil war uh, about car registration plates? Uh, Brian, that's what it's about. Uh, now, for some, of course, this is a serious issue, but this is about the issuance of car registration plates, because as of the 1st of April 2023, all cars 
uh, belonging to Serbian residents in Kosovo, Kosovo must display a Kosovo license plate or face, a, or they have to face a fine. Um, and uh, up until now, Serbian license plates have been allowed. Now, on the 1st of November, then, uh, Kosovo issued a warning uh, for people that anybody that had a, a Serbian license plate on their car would have to change that. Uh, uh, people aren't having it. Uh, so th the next thing was that on the 5th of November, uh, Serbians in northern Kosovo quit jobs if they were working for the state uh, or if they were uh, working either for the government as, a, as sort of members of parliament or in the civil service and so on. That was quickly followed up on the 5th of November by the police, as any Kosovo-Serbian Kosovo police uh, surrendering their weapons. They took their uniforms off, they pulled the epaulettes off them uh, at a meeting and so on. Uh, and then uh, the next thing was that uh, Alexander Vucic uh, saying uh, the Kosovo police have nothing to do in the north of Kosovo. Uh, if, if they have nothing to do, they will have hell on earth. So basically he's talking about hell on earth uh, in Kosovo over this issue. Now, here's the thing. He is a Serbian president. Uh, the Serbian government is basically Western controlled. The Serbian people are very much pro-Russia. Uh, and so what we're looking at here is another NATO front. And if we just put uh, Alexander back on screen there, we must remember who he is the puppet of. He is the puppet of this man uh, who has been advising the Serbian government. And for our listeners, that is Tony Blair on screen at the moment. So, so undoubtedly a British influence on this. Uh, now, in NATO, of course, has a presence there on the Serbian-Kosovan border. Uh, NATO's role in NATO has been leading a peace support operation in Kosovo since June 1999 to support wider international efforts uh, to build peace and stability in the area. Uh, and so this is uh, this peace, uh, what do we call it, peacekeeping uh, contingent is basically run by the Italians at the moment. They are the major uh, force or the leading force there. But here's the, the, the point is, if NATO then expands its presence in the area, this again will become another uh, front for Pressure the battle point. with Russia because it's going to be a proxy, a further proxy war. Now, Vanessa Bailey is going to be with us on uh, Friday and is going to go into this in more detail because she knows much, has better understanding of the, the various factions and so on involved in this and the various players. But uh, this looks to me, Brian, like the West and probably the United Kingdom. Well, they're getting desperate, Mike, because the war in Ukraine is not going as they expected. They thought it was going to be um, a walkover. It hasn't happened. So now they're going to try and trigger flashpoints elsewhere in order to cause Russia problems. So this is warmongering again by the West. And of course, the UK government is fully involved. Um, the likes of Blair in the background. What is Boris Johnson's role at the moment, Mike? He's uh, speaking out on matters. What, what is his position to speak internationally? Uh, well, he doesn't have any formal position, I suppose, just as Tony Blair doesn't have any formal position, but it seems to me that he's playing pretty much the same game. Yeah. Uh, right, let's come back to the UK then. And, uh, well, people are going to be very excited. Some veterans are going to be very excited because they're going to get some new medals. Um, so let's uh, put Rishi on screen here. This is a new medal to honour the significant contribution of veterans and civilian staff from across the Commonwealth who participated in Britain's nuclear testing programme. 
the award comes as the country pays tribute to the veterans of the United Kingdom nuclear test program at the National Memorial Arboretum at Staffordshire this morning, uh, the event which t takes place 70 years after the first British test of nuclear weapons uh, will be attended by the Prime Minister, the Defence Secretary and Veterans Affairs Minister Johnny Mercer. Uh, so there's uh, Ben Wallace, oh, there's the three stooges there in fact uh, sitting uh, and they were very excited about it. Here's what Johnny Mercer had to say. Uh, to this day the nuclear deterrent remains the cornerstone of our defence and that is only because of the server, service and contribution of the brilliant veterans and civilian personnel. And of course the key point here, Brian, is what was their major contribution? Well, it was mainly to die, it seems, uh, because of course if we, I mean the government has tried to whitewash this over the years, uh, but if we look at this report here from the National Radiological Protection Board entitled Mortality and Cancer Incidents in UK Participants in UK Atmospheric Nuclear Weapons Tests and Experimental Programs. Uh, although they, they downplay, absolutely downplay the, the effect that this had on people, uh, they do, for example, have a table uh, of the numbers of individuals believed by the Ministry of Defence to have been liable to exposure to radiation by group and service. And on the left-hand side there, you can see the crew of HMS Diana. Now, uh, we know uh, people that have, or we have... Well, I, I think we should be entirely um, factual here, Mike. We, we know about HMS Diana because one extremely brave lady who has supported, uh, who supported the UK column for many years, Sheila Butler, her husband was exposed to radiation in HMS Diana and subsequently died of cancer. So we know from first-hand account from that family of the suffering that they endured as a result of these horrific experiments where service people were deliberately put in hot radiation areas so that the government could see whether they lived for a while or how quickly they died. Uh, indeed, and we should make the point that HMS Diana was sailed through that hot region twice. Um, so it went, it passed by the, uh, through, uh, passed through the radiation zone twice in order to make sure they got a good dose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this has been covered in the mainstream uh, news. So here's the mirror in tw 2000, uh, earlier in February this year, saying nuclear test veterans were, were more likely to die, uh, to have cancer and die, government study finds. But even this uh, more up-to-date government study than the one I've just shown, was absolutely downplaying the difference in incidence between uh, people that had been exposed and people that hadn't. And the government consistently fought the veterans in the courts to make sure that they did not have to pay out any, any form of compensation for veterans damaged as a result of those nuclear test experiments. Uh, and in the press release it just finishes by saying the medal can be awarded posthumously, so that's, that's all very good then. Yeah, so what have we got? Well, we've got Richie Sunak fluffing himself up on the veterans in order presumably to raise his image of amongst the, we'll call it the established community in UK. But of course, it's the woke agenda that's coming through uh, from our government and particularly the uh, Conservative government at the moment that is damaging the uh, services. So we've got yet another headline. This one is from The Sun, sex rap deputy commander that's the chief executive, the second in command, it should be, of nuclear armed submarine arrested on suspicion of sexually assaulting subordinate. 
The sub's executive officer was accused of assaulting a junior male rating in the latest sex abuse scandal to rock the silent service. Now, the, these incidents are horrific because what people have to remember is that if you're at sea for weeks or months locked in a steel box, for the victim of these incidents, there is nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. And um, this is another one of uh, a succession of deeply unpleasant incidents which are affecting um, the Royal Navy in particular, but the other services are affected. And this is deliberate policy in order to break down the morale and performance, operational performance of our armed forces. So whilst we had um, Radikin playing at being a soldier in Ukraine, the reality is that his Navy is suffering under, uh, as a result of these policies. But of course, he does nothing about that. Indeed. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and uh, your membership would be very much appreciated. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, including a membership gift voucher for Christmas. A very good idea. Very good idea. Please do share anything you see on the various platforms. Um, okay, Debbie, let's uh, come back for a quick update on uh, Mariana Spring. Uh, has she sprung? No, I'm afraid she hasn't. But it's not for the want of trying. Um, as you can see there, she's tweeting out and wanting to speak to people, but she doesn't seem to want to speak to me. So I'm just hanging in the balance, waiting for her to spring back into my DMs. Well, to spring into my DMs for the first time, but as yet, silence. OK, well, let's move on then to uh, the issue of, uh, well, uh, health and uh, whether or not we're getting any safety uh, with respect to public health policy these days. Oh, well, this is a very interesting topic. Um, but first of all, I just want to start off by thanking a very kind viewer for sending me this information about the Spectator Health Summit. Now, if there's anybody that's in London that would like to uh, go, they can be sure on the 28th of November in London to be seeing Steve Barclay and Lord Bethel. And of course, Lord, Lord Bethel is the architect of life sciences in the UK. Uh, nice to see that it's sponsored by good old pharmaceuticals. So thank you very much for that. And if anybody can go and um, uh, to that, that would be great. They could report back to us. And also uh, we've got Dr. Henrietta Hughes in conversation as well. If anybody wants to find a ticket on Eventbrite, they can to speak to Dr. Well, to watch Dr. Henrietta Hughes in conversation with um, Rachel Power on Wednesday, the 30th of November between nine and 10 o'clock. And I have my ticket and I know a lot of other people have. So look forward to seeing you there. But what I really wanted to do today was to highlight on patient safety because it's a huge subject. And if we just look at the top of the pyramid and see what the WHO are saying on their page, and you can just freeze the screen there and see some, some of the statistics, but some of them clearly, each year 134 million adverse events occur in hospitals in low and middle income countries due to unsafe care. Another interesting statistic on medication er er errors are that they cost the US 42 billion annually. Patient safety is a massive, massive business and an industry all in itself, if you like. So I thought I'd go and see what the NHS have got to offer. So when I went to the NHS page 
I saw loads and loads of different links. And Mike, I think you very kindly um, maybe have recorded some of this page on the NHS website so well, that you got, can just what, see. What we're going to do, Debbie, is we're just going to scroll down through this page. Now, nobody's going to be able to see what it actually says because in order to get it, get you give you an idea of how much stuff there is on this page, uh, we have to scroll by very quickly. So just give you an idea of how much material there is on there and lots for people to read. And I suggest people do go and read it. But with that in mind, uh, Debbie, uh, the UK must be one of the safest places on the planet. Well, yes, we would think so, wouldn't we? Um, so let's go and see who's in charge of our uh, patient safety, uh, because I don't know if you've heard of Aidan Fowler. Aidan Fowler is our Deputy Chief Medical Officer. He's on secondment to, to Chris Whitty. He's a surgeon and he's he's been working worldwide, including Qatar. But he is the patient safety director. Now, very interestingly, in his um, inaugural speech when he was appointed for the patient safety um, strategy and the rollout of the patient safety strategy, he quoted John F. Kennedy by saying, we are not here to curse the darkness, but to light the candle that can guide us through that darkness to a safe and sane place and there you you can see it there i've i've underlined it there because we seem to going back to what uh, brian and, and, and you were saying mike earlier we seem to be having a lot of candles lighting a lot of darkness at the moment including patient safety so this is aiden fowler who nobody seems to know is actually in charge of patient safety within the nhs along with dr henrietta hughes of course but then when we go and look again at patient safety within the nhs let's go back to jeremy hunt because jeremy hunt has started patient safety watch he was uh, chair of the health and safety executive committee but he's appointed james tipcombe in his role now as chancellor of the exchequer of course he can't he can't he doesn't have time to look at patient safety so so he's employed james tipcombe obe now james tipcombe is a very interesting young man because without bragging folks I'm a state registered nurse. James Titcombe was a project manager for the nuclear industry, right? So sadly, he lost his son um, when he was eight days old and he fought to find out what had happened. And he, he did it very well and he campaigned and he was very successful. As a result of his campaign, he was all awarded an OBE into all sorts of maternity scandals. So once he got his OBE, he went and did a PG cert in patient safety. Well, you know what, folks? I've got a PG cert in autism and I was a government advisor as well. So we're kind of on the same level, only that I'm a nurse and he was a, a nuclear power um, project manager. And yet this man has now been elevated to such a high position within the NHS, we can go on and look at the health safety investigation branch, which is what he actually started, this health safety investigation branch. And just at the bottom of the page, you'll see that there's a little YouTube. So if you go onto the website, you can see, um, I think we have shown it previously on the news, but if you just want a reminder of what the health care safety investigation branch does, that's what it does. So James Titcombe 
maybe we should be writing to James Titcombe particularly, but let's look and see what it takes to be an investigator. So who investigates patient safety? Now, admittedly, I will say that when I went to this page on the HSIB, there are a couple of nurses as well that are investigators, but it seems you can be anybody. We've got, um, we've got somebody from the army, We've got somebody from aeronautics and railway industries. We've got all sorts of people with regards to being investigators. So my question is, is who is actually looking after us? Because it's not nurses and it's not doctors. It seems to be random people, campaigners that have been put into these positions. But patient safety has got two arms of it. So patient safety within hospitals where you see maternity scandals or bad care, poor care. We can talk about midazolam and morphine, I'm sure, again, at a very, uh, very soon. But we've also got to look at medicine care. So we let's go back to the MHRA because I do love to go back to the MHRA. So let's meet a new gentleman called Phil Tragunner. Now, Phil Tragunna, I actually discovered on the last MHRA board meeting, which we'll come on to in a minute. But Phil Tragunna is actually the Deputy Director of Patient Safety Monitoring at the MHRA. And really, it's his job to direct professionals to the yellow card scheme. And he's even um, managed to devise a system that alerts general practitioners to the yellow card scheme. But it seems to be that general practitioners aren't terribly aware of what's going on. So let's have another look at Phil Tragunner. Let's see what he's qualified in. He's been to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's got a certificate as well. Everyone's got certificates today. Certificate in Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacovigilance. And he did a degree at Exeter in Biological and Medicinal Chemistry. So it doesn't sound terribly safe to me. And you know, what was even more worrying was when we broadcast parts of the MHRA board meeting last week, um, it was very kindly put up on YouTube. And then all of a sudden, it disappeared and we got rumbled. <laughs> well, we, we ended up on rumble. And I've just included a sign here to say that YouTube, that violation notice came up. What we've done was show the MHRA board, board meeting. But very kindly, some people on Twitter um, <laughs> have done some memes, which you might like to read out there because I think they're very indicative of what actually happens at the MHRA board meeting. They're a bit too small for me to read. Well, the one at the top right says, don't look up, June, but I think the viewers are starting to notice our shaky background, and <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's absolutely right. The second one says, uh, which is June Rain looking up, just a note for you, camera two, before we roll, could you check you have the celebratory champagne in shot? Right, and the other thing, take care to exclude the doorway in case the door gives way during the meeting. Just bring up my mic and carry on. So, yeah, they don't want people coming through the door to the meeting and they want to check the champagnes there because, as June says, they're doing such a good job. Before we, we just move on to this clip, I wanted to ask, Debbie, I remember looking at the HSIB some time ago. Am I right in saying that they don't apportion blame? They investigate, but then what happens is we learn from the lessons. There's no, nobody's at fault. We learn the lessons and then we move on. 
No, absolutely correct. We never apportion blame. Absolutely not. We just investigate and move on. And you know what? They're, they're so Nobody seems to want to talk about anything, do they? Including the MHRA. So let's come back to the MHRA board meeting, you know, because there was a little clip at the end, which we didn't have time to show last week. Alison Cave, just, just listen to the questions that she gets asked. And Forgive me if I'm being a bit unfair, but I think she's getting a little bit ruffled towards the end. Have a look at this. Now comes to my favourite part of the board meeting, in fact, actually. So, uh, Rachel, can I check if we've got any questions from members of the public? Yes, we've had um, quite a number of comments and questions and points raised uh, from members of the public through the meeting. So I've um, pulled out uh, half a dozen questions, um, including uh, two of the pre-submitted ones that um, range across a number of the topics on the agenda. Okay, um, and so, as, so we're talking six questions, that would yeah. be great. So the first question then, let's, let's go straight into it. Yeah, so the first question is one of the pre-submitted ones. And just to say, um, we've had another one come through the chat function that's quite linked. So you might want to take those two together as I think okay. they'll both be for Alison. So the first one is, um, how does the Safety Connect system identify safety signals? Uh, hundreds of researchers around the world have identified and reported on adverse events from COVID vaccines, but the MHRA has apparently not detected any safety signals. How is this possible? And as I say, that's one of the pre-submitted questions. Okay, Alison, do you want to help yeah, us with so that? So I take that. Um, and obviously the board and members listening and people listening have heard about Safety Connect today. And what yep. today we focused much more on the front end of the system and some of the technology. We didn't discuss the signal detection process, which will be considerably enhanced through the new platform. But just as a quick synopsis, um, what we're trying to do, obviously, with spontaneous reporting is to identify any new adverse events, but also any change in adverse events already identified. And that might be adverse reports or adverse events from devices. Um, so what we do is we do apply statistical methods um, onto our data to, so that we can understand whether these events are happening more frequently than we would expect in the general population. So really to look at that observed versus expected ratio. And we do that based on a number of data sources which we bring in and look and through the COVID-19 vaccines, which was also highlighted in the question, we did that in a very um, proactive, real-time basis, looking in a weekly a weekly basis, what was the observed, what was the expected ratio of any signal that we detected. We also try to look at the clinical characteristics of any signal that we're seeing to see if there are new patterns of illness emerging that would indicate a potential new safety concern. Um, and we bring in other sources, studies globally, um, as well as other, other uh, data released from other regulatory authorities. So it's a very comprehensive process looking holistically at a signal and trying to understand whether this is a real new or change signal or whether it's something that is really just coincident with the taking of a, a medicine or use of a device. I would just like to emphasize that of course through the COVID-19 pandemic we regularly and continuously assess safety signals and all of those safety signals, not true to say MHRA did not detect any safety signals. There is a, cons a really substantial 
report on our website, which through the COVID pandemic was updated regularly with all of the data that we were assessing, all of our analysis of that data, and all of the contextualization of the data, which I would like to um, point the questioner to. Yeah, and, and I think in addition to that, that data was shared with other, other international regulators. Absolutely. So Absolutely. it wasn't even kept in yeah. the in the no. UK. This was shared internationally and yeah. has actually been a huge body of evidence to support the safe use of these vaccines around the world. Yeah, and we've been very transparent and we've regularly published that on our website. Do you believe her? Well, I, I want to say, wow, Debbie, because um, to me, that lady is certainly rattled because she came out with the most incredible um, verbiage, which actually said nothing because there was nothing in there, which comes back to the basic question, what have they done to establish that the, uh, the vaccines are safe? Their own evidence shows that clearly there's a massive problem. But in the verbiage, she just twists her way through to make it appear that by manipulating data, they've actually carried out a risk assessment, whereas the evidence is they have never carried out a risk assessment into the vaccines or their own data. But the prize has got to go to um, uh, Stephen Lightfoot there, the chairman, because he then spins it into a global issue that they've shared the data with not other safety authorities but other regulators who are the people working alongside the pharmaceutical industry so because they've shared it with yet more um, partners of the pharmaceutical industry globally everything's okay don't bother us I, I notice that there are a few people in the UK column chat box who say that they've watched that uh, particular MHRA board meeting and it made them feel quite unwell that those people were able to sit there and um, what, what's the word, filibluster, obfuscate, deceive the public. Isn't that what they're doing? I'd say they were lying. I mean, it's categorical lies at the end of the day, the MHRA. The only way that we are going to stop this is by taking down the MHRA, which is why I am so, I won't stop at the MHRA because they are the enabler to all of these medications. And, you know, one more thing with regards specifically to exclusive news, and, and this is what, what I wanted to say specifically today, was that I was being very alert, well, very worried, and I had alerted people a few weeks ago to the fact that we thought the MHRA were going to perhaps approve the COVID-19 vaccine for six-month-old babies. So I wrote a Freedom of Information to June Rain a little while ago, and last night I received a reply. Again, that's a bit small, so you might want to just read out um, my two questions um, and what I've underlined, because it looks as though this is indeed going to happen in the UK and that babies will be on the list of six months old for the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. But this is the first confirmation I've seen from the MHRA. Yeah, so they're saying we have received an application from the marketing authorization holder to extend the use of Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, bracket spike vax, to children aged six months to five years. Uh, and it goes on to say we will conduct our own benefit risk evaluation and publish our decision in due course. So they haven't quite published it yet, but it's, it's certainly coming and certainly under consideration. Yeah, and what's worrying is that, of course, they'll ask the JCVI, they'll say to the JCVI, all we've done is approved it. It's now up to you 
to recommend it. But ha hello, MHRA, if they had never approved it in the first place, the JCBI wouldn't need to make a decision. But while we're on the MHRA, let's just get up close and personal to Dame June Rain, because I found another lovely little video of her giving a very charming interview about uh, what it's like being a, a very important woman in a very important job. So find out what June Rain thinks about the press. I'm going to go to the, to the chat now and make sure everyone gets a chance to ask questions. And the first question is, how has the science behind regulation been reported in the media? And what can we do to improve it? I would say, and it's good to focus on this, that the media have taken a very responsible attitude. And I valued it greatly because particularly in the context of managing risks and supporting public patients to make decisions, we absolutely rely on good reporting, good timely reporting. And I've got nothing but, but really praise for the journalists who appreciate that fact and do it so well. Uh, so where could we improve? I think probably, and I would look internally at even more training in terms of key messages for us as a regulator, we tend to want to give all the facts and all the science, but very often it's the media who can distill down to what really is the key issue and press, press us on those. So I think it has been a, a quite a synergy during the pandemic and I very much hope that will be maintained. Yeah, quite a synergy, quite a synergy. I've been reporting very accurately, haven't I? Um, is that praise for me? Because Dame June Rain won't speak to me, but I do agree with her. I do think we have been responsibly reporting. It's just that she won't speak to me. So um, my next question to Dame June Rain and to um, Dr. Henrietta Hughes, bearing in mind that, you know, talk about closing the, the, the stable door once the horse has bolted, but we now find out that Moderna and Pfizer are going to be carrying out their own clinical trials on long-term serious adverse reactions with regards to the jab. Of course, we didn't have any long-term data before because we rolled it out far too quickly. However, if Moderna and Pfizer are, are starting uh, an investigation and are looking at long-term reactions, then my tweet to the MHRA and Dr. Henrietta Hughes is, well, why aren't you? And going back, finishing this segment really where we started on patient safety, because patient safety, you know, it doesn't need to be taught. We, as nurses, all of you old school nurses and doctors that are watching, you will agree with me, I know, patient safety was a given. That's what, that's what nursing and medicine and, and looking after people is all about, safety. But according to Professor Chris Whitty, who very kindly tweeted this letter sent out to all clinical practitioners, let's break the rules. Mike, Brian, I'll let you do the honours on those two little, little paragraphs I've highlighted. Okay, still quite challenging for me, but I'll do my best. So um, in the uh, two paragraphs that you've put the black highlighted border, it says this. In such challenging times, when you may need to depart from established procedures to care for people, we understand some could be fearful that they will be referred to your regulator. Please be assured that your professional code and principles of practice 
are there to guide and support your judgments and decision making in all circumstances. This includes taking into account local realities and the need at times to adapt practice at times of significantly increased national pressure. In the unlikely event that you are referred to your professional regulator, they will consider the context you were working in at the time, including all relevant resources, guidelines or protocols. So is this the get out of jail free card, Debbie, for people who were administering morphine and uh, other pharmaceutical products which ultimately uh, resulted in the demise of particularly elderly people in the NHS? Um, they died, but we're going to show you why you needn't worry. Yeah, it's do your own thing. Just do your own thing. Uh, don't worry about a thing because we'll look after you kind of thing. I mean, it's it's terrifying. I mean, who would you want looking after patient safety, James Titcombe or me? Because personally, I'd want me. And I'm just as qualified, if not more qualified, than James Titcombe to care for patients, and I'll do it in a safe way. Okay, thank you. All right, well, let's uh, come back to the, to the UK Health Security Agency then, and uh, well, they have decided that new UK Health Security Agency evidence indicates that uh, a single MVABN vaccine dose provides around 78% protection against monkeypox 14 days after being vaccinated. So that's good news, isn't it? Yeah, right, okay, well, let's uh, go on. Uh, approximately, just to Put this in context this is this is a new campaign that's being run by the government now to get uh, monkeypox vaccines everywhere uh, but let's just keep in mind the uh, the the risk uh, that is supposed to be on the other side of the reward uh, calculation uh, because in terms of cases uh, the government says approximately 10 percent of cases receive hospital care but this includes some cases admitted as unable to isolate at home antiviral therapy is an unreliable indicator at present there are no reported deaths in the UK. In the 2022 global outbreak, three deaths have been reported from 6,027 cases. So Debbie, uh, we're going to start a uh, vaccination campaign for monkeypox on the basis of 6,000 global cases and three deaths. Yeah, monkeypox. The uh, monkeypox vaccine, of course, is the smallpox vaccine, Bavarian Nordic. Um, what can I say? I mean, I've got no words, Mike. Nobody yeah. needs a monkeypox vaccine. Nobody. And where are all these monkeypox people that are in hospital? I haven't seen any. No. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on or back on to the subject of uh, migration because we know that this is such a critical subject and a great many people in UK are very disturbed about what's happening. UK has suggested on a number of subjects at a number of times that the problems in this country are because we are being attacked by our own government and uh, I'm happy to suggest today that when we look at migration not only are the people migrating being attacked because they're being used as global political pawns but ultimately the host country suffers as well and the um, the inhabitants of those countries are being attacked and suffer so this is the financial times from the 5th of august 2022 um, a very glossy emotive animated article which you'll need to see by going to the ft itself uh, but with uh, some emotive pictures of families, the headline was Beyond Ukraine, Refugees Relying on the Kindness of Strangers. 
Ukrainians share the heartache of leaving their homeland to start new lives and uncertainty over the next uh, over their next steps. So um, I can't give you the detail of the article. There's just too much, but I do want to say very, very emotional. Um, but this was a particularly interesting embedded uh, graphic uh, which shows you the scale of the problem. Now, earlier I mentioned that the Ukrainians themselves were talking about 7 million people having left the country altogether. In this, we see that 1.62 million have actually gone to Russia. So clearly a lot of Ukrainians are very happy uh, with the Russians and being called Russians. But Poland there suffering 1.22 million, Germany 893,000. Uh, Czech Republic is a great big circle, haven't got the figure to go with it. Uh, but of course, at the end of the day, uh, UK, France and all the other European countries are in the mix. And these people displaced because of a war that was started uh, principally by the machinations of the US and the UK. If we just put that back on screen, uh, let's just add a key statistic which is buried in the text. It says about 86,000 Ukrainians have resettled in the UK since March under the Homes for Ukraine scheme or a related program for Ukrainians with family already living in the country. Now, the big thing that I established from this article and research that I did subsequently is it's almost impossible to find out the, uh, the true latest figure for how many people have come into this country and indeed are coming in. But so that our viewers can do the research themselves, let's have a look at gov.uk. And we have to come through to the Department for Leveling Up housing and communities. I don't get a warm feeling out of that uh, particular name, Mike. I'm sure uh, Michael Gove does. <laughs> perhaps he does. So, uh, well, you've named the man, Michael Gove, on the 14th of March 2022, launched a web page for sponsors to record their interest, the Homes for Ukraine scheme. So this was the government's reaction to a war that it had helped start. Uh, let's get the Ukrainians uh, coming to UK. And if we dip into some of the statistics, it gets interesting. This is table one, applications for visas made by Ukraine nationals by year ending June 2018 to June 2022. So admittedly, this is uh, pre, uh, pre the existing war, although there was still uh, stuff going on in Ukraine. And uh, if we have a look at the uh, visa scheme, we've got 146,000 plus, Ukraine Family Scheme 45,000 and the Ukraine Sponsorship Scheme 100,000. Now I'm going to suggest that uh, the pressure of these and other people coming into UK means that we can never have stability in, in the UK. We can never have sufficient housing, we can never have an infrastructure system or a railway system, a transport system that works because of the volume of people. Yeah, sorry, if we just put that back on screen for a second. Of course, that the, the Ukraine visa scheme, the Ukraine family scheme, the Ukraine sponsorship scheme, scheme, that's only from March until June 2022. So that's for three months, March, April, May, June, the four months, let's yeah. say, if we, if, uh, in the meantime, 
July, August, September, October, November has gone past. So there's another six months. So we could perhaps extrapolate, it, might be, it would be a guess, but nonetheless, the figure is probably more likely to be double what's on screen at the moment. Well, uh, well you, you've, <laughs> you've done the work, Mike, because we have to guess, because the British government clearly doesn't want to admit to the population of UK what it is doing. We have to guess by looking at the statistics and extrapolating. But this is another graph um, which uh, is talking about grants of settlement in the UK by reason. Uh, and reason seems to be work, family, asylum, which is the uh, very light grey colour you see, and, um, uh, or, or other. And um, on the left-hand axis there, we've got set settlement grants in thousands so where are we june 2022 we're up to 120,000. and if we follow through on citizenship grants of british citizenship i found this is utterly fascinating applications for citizenship by non-eu nationals has remained broadly stable eu nationals accounted for over a quarter of all citizenship applications and it goes on to talk about the result of the EU referendum and UK's supposed exit from the EU. But if we highlight this paragraph, there were 194,058 grants of British citizenship in the year ending June 2022, 22% more than in 2019. Uh, this increase comes after a period of relative stability since uh, 2014. And if we put another graph up, this is the EU settlement scheme quarterly statistics, um, cumulative number of applications received and applications concluded at the end of each month since the start of the scheme. And the left-hand axis there, applications per month, that's also thousands. So um, we're, we've got some months there where we can easily see 400,000 applications. Well, there's one month of the nearly 600,000 Indeed, applications. Per, per, per month. So what this actually means in total number of people settled, we have no idea. Uh, but with relation to the EU, EEA and Swiss citizens uh, who've decided to stay in UK as a result of uh, supposedly Brexit, uh, it says that um, of the 6.7 million applications made, an estimated 5.9 million people had applied to the scheme by the end of June 2022. Um, how many people are we dealing with here? Now you made the point, Mike, and I fully accept it, that basically people um, who moved here during our time in the EU had made new lives for themselves, and then they're given the option of staying. But even so, we've got to recognise that if we had millions, how many millions are we talking about of additional people, that places a huge load on the whole of the infrastructure in the country. Is it any wonder that nothing works? But of course, the government not telling the truth about this. But let's come back to levelling up. And um, Debbie, I shall watch your face as we do this little segment because um, we can't deal with sewage and wastewater throughout the country at the moment, but we've got plans to level up and build new homes. 
and so all around the country we've got amazing schemes. Uh, these are apparently going to follow the so-called Biden principle, which I found faintly amusing. Uh, but Debbie, you shouldn't worry because uh, levelling up is going to make sure that new development is beautiful. It's going to be supported by the right infrastructure. Uh, it's going to produce a more democratic system where communities have their say. It's going to enhance the environment and it's going to create better neighbourhoods shaped by the people who live in them. So, Debbie, do you feel happier now you realise that all, the, all your problems are in the past as you are levelled up? No. If they could level my house up, I'd be really grateful. If they could level it out of sewage and, and water. And you know what? It's interesting, Brian. You say the word beautiful. Beautiful's the new buzzword. Michael Gove uses it all the time. Everywhere's going to be beautiful. If you want to come to a beautiful county like sewage, uh, like sewage, <laughs> Cornwall, you'll see sewage. Maybe we should call it county sewage, not county Cornwall, perhaps. Okay, well, maybe this is the lady you should be going to, Debbie. You're just targeting the wrong ladies. Perhaps it's Lucy Fraser because she's the Conservative rep MP for South East Cambridgeshire. And she had this to say, levelling up means creating vibrant and beautiful communities where local people and businesses can thrive. The measures we're setting out today will put protecting the environment at the heart of our plans while bringing forward much needed new homes across the country. And as we've said many times, just outside Plymouth, chewing up farmland, we've got a new town, ever expanding, ever destroying uh, soil that could be growing things. But she went on, uh, we will make sure that new development is surrounded by the right infrastructure and that local people are given an opportunity to shape their neighbourhood. So this is dreamland and I think a lot of people in the chat box today now realise what is going on. These people are not in the real world. They're living in a future utopia. It's jammed tomorrow. They have no concept of the damage that's already been done in this country. And if the immigration is going to continue at the levels it is, where effectively a new city is coming in every few months, there's no possible way that the infrastructure can be set up to cope. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're misunderstanding there, Brian, because the only infrastructure that matters is ultra-fast broadband. That's the infrastructure that the government is investing oh. in at the moment. Uh, you know, sewage, uh, transport, uh, schools, hospitals, these kind of things, they don't count. They're not, it's not infrastructure. No, because in the future, everything will be in the digital, digital world. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, anyway, there's your lady, Lucy, Lucy Fraser. She should be highly experienced at getting things done because she's fully legally uh, trained. We'll be interested to see what infrastructure she's going to bring in to deal with the millions of people that are coming into UK. And we'll emphasise the point we regard anybody who is on the move as a, a migrant, an economic migrant, or somebody fleeing from war, we realise that each and every one of these people are victims of the globalist policies that have forced the migration in the first place. Are we, are we sheep? Uh, well, uh, that's a very good question. But uh, Debbie, let's just uh, end with a couple of uh, lighter hearted things. And uh, well, the question is, what are the sheep doing in China? 
Well, this is a really good question, actually. As we're all going in ever-decreasing circles, it seems like the animals are as well. And mysteriously, in Inner Mongolia, in China, and do go and have a look at the YouTubes. There's plenty of YouTubes online to look at. But there's this eerie footage of this huge flock of sheep who have been walking around in a circle for days and days and days. Not only have we got sheep in um, Inner Mongolia, but we've got reindeer in Russia in the Arctic Circle. Now, no one knows whether it's behavioural, whether it could be listeriosis, which to us is listeria, quite dangerous for pregnant women, or whether it's a behavioural thing. No one seems to know. But if you go onto YouTube and have a look, it's quite extraordinary. And everybody that I've shown the videos to have literally said, wow. So well, well, apparently I'll leave you with that. Apparently they've stopped it now, but uh, I, I was amused to see the, the mainstream press trying to publish articles today explaining or come up with explanations for it and failing miserably. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, 135 quids on the go. Yeah, ladies, if you're feeling you need a bit of support, then here he is, Bear Puffy. Look, I mean, He's, I just, I don't know if he's quite as tall as Rishi. He might be about the same same height as Rishi Sunak, but for 135 pounds, there's your Christmas present. <laughs> Personally, I'd rather have a, an annual subscription to a UK column, but yes. there it is. <laughs> okay, and uh, we'll just end with, uh, with this. Yes, I mean, the meme, you can see how often do people die from this experimental mRNA procedure and the docs are looking very serious with the patient laughing somewhat. I don't think the vaccine injured are laughing, saying just once. And then um, you've got a couple of uh, chickens there. Of course, we know about the avian flu. And it says, be reasonable, Frank. If he wanted us dead, he would. He, why would he feed us so much? But clearly the other little chicken is a little bit more hesitant and says, hey, believe what you want to believe. I'm out of here. And yeah. I think I would be too. I've got a suspicion those are turkeys, Debbie. Turkeys. Are they turkeys? Yeah. <laughs> With Christmas looming. And well, and uh, well, uh, oh, it's completely gone out of my well, head. There you but, are. Anyway, <laughs> let's move on. Okay, we should end there. We've ended on a smile, but my goodness, things very, very serious in UK. And it's getting ever uh, easier to see that the problem is our own government. The policies which are doing the damage come from the government. These are calculated policies. It's the government ultimately which is causing the trouble. So it's up to every one of us to stand up and say no. We must uh, end there. We'll be back for extra Excellent. time in a few moments. Thank you very, very much to everybody supporting the UK column. We can only do what we do with your financial support. Thank you. Bye bye.